Good morning, church. In 1948, the English poet W.H. Auden, he won the Pulitzer Prize in poetry for this long-form poem. And uh, you might know the name because it became a famous symphony uh, by Leonard Bernstein. It became the title of a very cool Arcade Fire song, which the younger crowd is going to get. It was called The Age of Anxiety. And it was a poem about man's quest to find substance and identity in an ever-shifting and industrialized world after World War II. And little did he know at the time that that phrase, the age of anxiety, would be near prophetic to describe what was coming. I don't think it's a surprise to any of us to hear that we live in an age of anxiety. A quick Google search, and you would be neck deep in statistics and articles about how the rise of anxiety has been drastic over the last decade or so. Just one statistic, um, in 2020, 25%, one in four of all undergraduate students in the U.S. were clinically diagnosed with anxiety. One in four. But anxiety is not just a struggle for the young. Anxiety is pervasive across all spectrums. And we could sit here and try and diagnose and tease apart the reasons for its upswing right now. We could talk about how we're more plugged in than ever before. We have 24-7 access to everything happening around the world. And yet, ironically, we have lost all of these grounding contact points in our life. Real connection to our work, our families, a loving community, our Creator. And that doesn't even begin to mention the impact of social media. So we could spend all morning talking about the whys of anxiety, but you didn't come to church to hear a TED Talk. We came to be shaped and molded by God's Word, and the truth is anxiety is nothing new. Feeling anxious has been a common denominator for all of human history. It's nothing new to be bogged down by the cares of this life to feel worry and concern for the future. So naturally, the scriptures actually have a lot to say about the topic. In fact, some of Jesus' most quoted words are about anxiety and worry. So our goal today is not to diagnose the reason why anxiety plagues us, but it's to go to God's word and see how he teaches us to handle it when it comes our way. And I would be lying to you if I didn't say there was a tinge of anxiety in my own spirit right now, just having to be up in front of you all and sharing the truth of God's word. So let me pray. Let's go to our Father and just ask him to to bless the teaching of his word. God, we thank you that we can come to you as our Father, that you care for us that the lyrics of that song that we just sang, that they are true, that they're from Scripture. Lord, that you don't want us to be troubled or concerned. You want us to fix our eyes on you. And today we fix our eyes on you and we fix our focus on your word. And we pray that our hearts would be fertile ground to receive your word today, to take it in, to understand it, 
to live it, to believe it. So bless your word, Lord. Produce fruit from it in Jesus' name. We pray, amen. Um, If you have a Bible with you, can you open up to Philippians chapter 4? If you don't have a Bible, there are plenty under the seats in front of you. We're going to be in chapter 4, verse 2 through verse 9 this morning. So I'm going to read the whole thing for us, and then we'll break it down bit by bit. Starting verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So we'll get to anxiety in a moment, but Paul begins the last stretch of this letter by addressing two women in particular. He says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He calls out these two women... And he urges them to stop bickering, to stop disputing, and come to a place of relational unity. We don't know how Paul gets word of this, but I can almost imagine Epaphroditus, who we heard about earlier in the letter, who is visiting Paul in prison, meeting his needs. I can almost imagine he's, he's sharing a meal with Paul, and in between bites of like hummus and pita, he's like, oh, by the way, Euodia and Syntyche, they're going at it again. You don't want to know. It's, it's best if I don't go into it. So Paul, obviously, he gets wind of this dispute, this disagreement. But a few things are worth noting how he handles his instruction to them. Whatever their disagreement's about, it doesn't seem to be of first-tier gospel importance. How do we know that? Well, Paul's never one to shy away from calling out heresy when he sees it. In fact, he spends major portions of his other letters dissecting and picking apart theological arguments that were starting to bubble up in the churches that he had planted. But here, he's speaking with a gentle hand, which makes me think that this is just revolving around peripheral matters, maybe not even something of spiritual importance. You know, maybe they were just arguing about what color curtain to hang in the house church. But whatever it is, uh, Paul decides to repeat something that he's already said in the letter earlier. He says, agree in the Lord. And that phrase there, agree, is be of the same mind. 
He's calling them to adopt the humble posture that the very first church in Acts was known for when it says they had all things in common. As believers, we need to strive toward living in harmony with one another, seeking spiritual, relational unity. When, when we come to Jesus to follow him, we lay aside our agendas and we find ourselves devoted, like Tony preached last week, we're devoted to this upward call in Christ Jesus, which means that our striving for earthly dominance, earthly power, that fades away into a position of low humility. And this type of unity among believers is so important. It's so important that Jesus himself prayed that it would exist amongst his church. He said that our unity would be one of the primary ways the world receives our witness of the gospel. And so because of this importance, Paul brings in a third party. He says, I'm going to ask this true companion. Your translation might say yoke fellow, which I love that image. Because aren't we all as believers yoked together as brothers and sisters plowing ahead to the kingdom He says, I want you to point these women back to their main identity in the gospel. He uses these awesome descriptors for them. He says, they're my fellow workers, my fellow laborers for the gospel. Their names are in the book of life. He's saying, remember your real identity. Remember your primary purpose and calling and let petty disputes just fall by the wayside. Don't let silly division disrupt the mission of the kingdom. The world already has enough fodder to throw at the church. Don't let any petty disputes hinder our witness. Laboring for the gospel is going to demand this of all of us, selfless love and radical humility. We die to our own agendas when we come to the Lord. So Paul... He's going to pivot from this specific instruction to these two women, and he's going to address the church more broadly. But as he's doing this, you can still hear him speaking almost directly to these two people. And I think this is a masterful teacher moment. Paul turns the address to the whole class, rather than continuing to call out one individual. He wants the whole class to know that just because they didn't get caught this time, that they weren't somehow immune from the same struggles creeping up in their own life. So he's turning his address to all of us now. And he's going to get very practical here. He's going to teach us what it looks like to be the type of person who is fixated on what we read last week, fixated on obtaining the prize of our call in Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again, rejoice. That's the thesis of his letter. It's it's what we call this sermon series. It's about joy. Rejoice in the Lord at all times, in all circumstances. And Paul has no qualms about really drilling it home for us. And I think he does this because, you know, this is an oral culture that he's writing to. So one way for them to remember what he said is for him to repeat himself. And 
Truthfully, we're no different. Repetition helps us. It's a memory tool. So to hear it over and over again, just it sinks in that we ought to rejoice in the Lord always. But he goes on from there and he tells them, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Your translation might have the word gentleness instead of reasonableness. It's this idea of having a calm, steady spirit about you, difficult to shake or stir up. And it stands in contrast to an easily uh, argumentative or disagreeable spirit, like the one that he just kind of called out in those two women. And, And the word gentleness or the translation gentleness is important too because it's difficult to preach a meek savior when we have an abrasive attitude. So what does it mean to make our reasonableness known to everyone? I think it's saying there needs to be alignment between what we say we believe and how we act, how we live. Because our character is what gives our witness validity. Our character, who we are, gives our witness validity. Why would we want our attitude to betray the message that we're sharing? Now, Paul doesn't just give us that instruction without the hope for fulfilling it. He partners that instruction with this sweet motivator. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now, you can discern that phrase in a couple of ways. One, you could think about it The Lord is at hand. He's near in time, which is to say Jesus' return is approaching, and when he arrives, everything is going to be made perfect. True justice is going to be administered, which means I don't need to strive for justice in this petty dispute with one of my fellow brothers or sisters in the Lord. It's to say that I believe Christ reigns over my circumstances. It's the reason that we stay humble in situations that otherwise might not call for humility. It's our hope, no matter our situation. Christ reigns over my circumstances. But you can also look at that phrase, the Lord is at hand, as in he's near in proximity, he's close by. The presence of Jesus is in us and with us always. What an amazing truth. That gives me the power, not just the reason, but the power to stay humble in the midst of adversity. It gives me peace now because he's with me now. It's to say that Christ reigns in my circumstances. That's what enables us to have a reasonable and gentle spirit in the face of all things. The Lord's presence is this anchor for us. And this type of attitude, this type of way of being, it stands in contrast to a worrisome and anxious spirit, which Paul's about to talk about. Let's read verses 6 and 7 together. Do not be anxious about anything, 
But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul makes a logical jump here from his command to always rejoice, to be reasonable at all times. It's almost like he's anticipating a question coming from the church at Philippi. He's almost anticipating them saying, yeah, Paul, but what if we find ourselves in circumstances that really warrant stressing out? Like, what if the situation just calls for the breakdown? Like, what then? You can't expect us to be reasonable then, right? Rejoicing then. And to that, Paul doesn't just say, well, stiff upper lip, soldier. Like, just plaster on an outward sense of calm when internally it's all turmoil. No, he's, he's already combated that type of outward performance earlier in this letter. What he's saying here, what he's doing is he's letting us in on the secret. And that's what we've been saying this whole sermon series, the secret of joy. And I don't really love that word secret because none of these things are secrets in the sense that they're undisclosed or unknowable or we don't have access to them. They are the intense spiritual reality that Jesus wants each of his followers to know and experience. He is offering us a true path toward a heart and mind that can rest steady in the peace of God. So as we pick apart these verses, I think it's important we begin with a working definition. What is anxiety? What are we talking about when we say anxiety? Anxiety, as the Bible speaks about it, means to be troubled with care, both in your mind and in your heart and your spirit. It's to be overwhelmed with concern. It has elements of fear and worry associated with it. We get our English word anxiety from the Latin root anger, not anger. Anger? I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but it's where we get the German word angst, which has a very similar connotation to anxiety. And the, the root actually means to choke or constrict, which I find really fascinating because there's clearly a physical component to anxiety. Like if I told you, you were going to be forced against your will tomorrow night to sing the national anthem at the Eagles game, like some of you are already feeling the constricting, choking sensation in your body right now. They're, your muscles are involuntarily constricting at the thought of something like that. But there's also a spiritual and emotional connotation to this idea of choking or constricting. You know, in the parable of the sower that Jesus tells us, he says, a sower went out to sow some seed. <clears throat> he says, some of the seed falls among weeds, which grow up side by side with the plant and choke it out. And do you know what one of the weeds he defines is? 
the concerns of this life. The same word Paul uses here for anxiety. The worries of this life will choke out our fruitfulness if we let it. When we're confronted with anxiety, with thoughts of concern and worry, we, we can feel like uh, Luke Skywalker in A New Hope. You know that scene when him and his friends are in the garbage compactor and it's, the walls are closing in and he's like, 3PO, 3PO! You know that? Am I alone here? Okay. That's what anxiety literally feels like internally, is that walls are compacting and closing in around us. Nothing feels stable. Nothing feels safe. Situations feel hopeless. And when we give in to that way of thinking, it makes us unfruitful. So again, there's a missional mentality to this. How does our attitude impact our witness? Because I don't want to be unfruitful. So what do we do? How do we tackle anxiety when it comes knocking? Well, the word says, bring your anxious thoughts to the Lord. Not only your anxious thoughts. It says, in everything, in everything, go to the Lord in prayer. Now, there's a, there's a part of me that wants to say, this is formulaic. This is trite. This is overly simplistic. I think my generation and, and younger falls into this trap, especially uh, a trap of cynicism, where a, when it comes to religious instruction, we're averse to methodology. But then I remember this is God's word. God's word is truth and life. And we need to cling to what it says with a measure of faith. And God's methodology doesn't have to meet some modern scientific standard. God is the standard. He says, bring me your struggles, bring me your complete and honest self in prayer. And he uses four distinct words to kind of add color and nuance to this prayer. And I think each of these words adds a unique layer of depth to our relationship with God and the relationship he wants us to have with him. So he starts by saying prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is vulnerable, reverent, open communication with the Lord. It's laying yourself bare before him because he already knows everything about you at this moment and always has and always will. There's nothing hidden before the eyes of God. So we just acknowledge that. And then Paul says, and also use supplication, which is not a word we use in our regular day-to-day vernacular. What is supplication? It's marked by an earnestness, a desperation. We call upon him because we are in need and he is our supply. It is supplication. We're like the persistent widow that keeps knocking at his door because we admit our need and we acknowledge that he has the ability to meet it. And we come with thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving is actively giving thanks. It's an active participation in gratitude for who God is. It's in his name. One of the names God has is Jehovah Jireh, God the provider. We come to him in thanksgiving because that's who he is. He's already lavished his love on on us. He's given us unhindered access to himself. We thank him for who he is, for what he's done, for what he's doing, and for what he's going to continue to do in our lives. And then we get specific. It says, make your requests known to him. This is asking for things, asking for the things you really need in your life, in your heart, to change, to be taken away from you, to be set free from. We don't come to God speaking in vague spiritual terms. He wants our specificity. He wants the relational familiarity of a child speaking to their father. Dad, I'm afraid. Can you help me? That's what he wants from us. And like all forms of prayer, we don't participate in it to make God aware of something as though he lacked information. We do it to remind ourselves of something. Namely, that we have an unshakable hiding place in the infinite love of God. Now, I want to I give an important caveat here. Um, as I was preparing this week, I struggled with how to broach this. But when it comes to anxiety, I don't want to minimize or stigmatize the need for counseling, the need for medication. There might very well be additional steps that you need to take to manage the stress in your life. But while there might be more that you need, this concept laid out for us in God's Word has to be where we all start. This has to be our foundation. We all need this as our baseline. A prayerful connection to the God who made you, loves you, cares for you, knows everything about your situation and has the desire and power to guard you. That has to be where we start. And I don't want us to skip over that process because maybe we don't see results right away. So we go looking for other alternatives. And I'm not here to belittle or negate any of these other methods. I just really feel the call to put in front of us the proper order of things. Those are potentially helpful add-ons, but our foundation has to be God's word and what he says. To give our anxieties over to him all the time, in everything, in prayer, and receive his peace. See, that's the beautiful thing about these verses is they, they have a promise attached to the instruction It starts out with commands, but it ends up at a promise. And so often in Scripture, God attaches a promise to a command, and he doesn't do it because we somehow earn the reward for good behavior. No. Our obedience puts us on the pathway to God, 
And the closer we get to God, that is the promise. His presence is the promise. And our obedience just puts us on the path to be near Him. So the verse says, do this and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that God's peace surpasses all understanding? I think one way of thinking about it is to say it goes beyond what our knowledge is capable of defining or describing. It defies comprehension. When you look at Daniel in the Bible, or Shadrach, or Esther, or Stephen, and the way they stood steadfast before imminent death, and the peace that they possessed in that moment, there's not a natural explanation for that. It defies logic. It's a peace that doesn't merely hit the intellect. It rests at the center of who we are as human beings. It rests in our spirit. And to say that it surpasses doesn't mean it rises above in kind. It does mean that, but it also has the connotation of rising above in authority. What I mean by that is this promise is saying God's peace holds a protective authority over our thoughts, over our minds. That's what it means that the peace of God guards our minds. But God doesn't view anxiety solely as an issue of the mind. He knows it is an attack on our hearts as well. Because our hearts, that's where our treasure lies. That's where our attitudes and our thoughts and our words, they stem from and overflow from our hearts. So we need God's peace to guard our hearts as well as our minds. And it doesn't say God's peace might guard your hearts and minds. It's not an issue of potential. That's what makes it a promise. It says his peace will guard your hearts and minds. But it's contingent on our participation in the method. And what's promised to us is not just that we receive God's peace in some vague, intangible way. You know, the culture loves to say, I'm sending good vibes your way. Like, what does that mean? I don't know. But the peace of God is something we can know, we can grasp, we can have. God's peace is given guardianship over us. That word guard, it's a military term. It means to protect, to preserve. It's to mount a watchful protector on the city wall in order to prevent invasion. And anxious thoughts, they're hostile invaders to a heart at peace. They do not belong in the promised land. Now, hear me on this, church. It, just because anxiety, I, I do believe it's something that happens to us, not necessarily because of us. I don't think to feel anxious is a sin. But that doesn't mean anxiety is neutral. 
that does not mean it's a spiritual non-combatant. It is a ploy of the enemy to rob us of our joy, shake our confidence in the Lord. And what I do with anxiety when it hits is of real importance. And I need a power stronger than my own resolve to handle it, to evict it. And thankfully, the one wielding the peace of God in our lives, it's not us. It's Jesus. And Scripture tells us He Himself is our peace. Jesus knows there are weights and burdens that we hoist onto our own shoulders that we were never meant to carry. And He urges us to give Him our yoke of heaviness. If His shoulders are broad enough to carry the cross, then they're broad enough to carry your concerns and your worries. And in exchange for our burdens, he gives us his yoke, which it turns out doesn't even feel like a yoke because it's easy and it's light. But so often we think about Jesus' work for us on our behalf, we think it ends at the cross and the tomb. Like, well done, it was finished. You did it, God. You did it, Lord. That's it. But no, it continues. It perseveres. Jesus right now ever lives to make intercession for you and for me. He's fighting for us, upholding us. And he places us within the shelter of himself and stands guard at the gate of our lives. So when we talk about Christian peace, we're not talking about some temporary fix or just some pleasantry, like some word that I'm just throwing out there. For the Christian, the reality is this. The peace of God, the immovable, unshakable, quiet calm that lives at the center of the sovereignty of God is being wielded like a fiery sword by Jesus Christ at the threshold of our hearts and our minds right now. It's like this inverse of the Garden of Eden. It's like the Lord brings us back into this place of shalom and he stands guard with the sword saying, I won't let hostile invaders come in here. I'll protect you. I'll shelter you. Now, there's one more step to the method. Once we bring our concerns to the Lord in prayer, that's not the end of of our participation or our role in the process. You know, anxiety wants to hijack our thoughts, wants to have us ruminate or dwell on things with apprehension, with concern, the future what-ifs, what might happen. So once we cast our cares on the Lord, we don't just leave empty space. Nature hates a vacuum. We have to fill that space with something. And the Word says fill it with good thoughts, thoughts that are pure, thoughts that are of the Lord, thoughts that bring you closer to the Lord. We have to be proactive about that. There's a promise in Scripture and from the book of Isaiah that says, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. I love that verb, stayed on. 
So my dog knows a few tricks. She can sit and she can lie down. And she can do both really, really well if you have a piece of cheese in your hand. But one thing she cannot do is she can't stay for the life of her. To stay would mean that her trust of her master would have to outweigh her own instincts. And that's what we need, is to put our instincts aside when it comes to the thoughts of anxiety that would plague us and trust our master. Where we fixate our thoughts has direct impact on our peace. It's a discipline. There are ruts in our minds and in our hearts that we have formed ways of thinking, patterns of thinking that we need the Spirit of God to till the soil and give us a fresh start and form new ways of thinking. It takes work, but it is possible, and we hold on to these promises in His Word that it's possible to receive. And praise God, this formula, this method for handling our anxieties, it's so much better than that which the world offers us. So much better. The world says, well, when you're anxious, just be stoic. They've been saying that for thousands of years. Be cold, be detached, don't let anything move you. Or they say, well, just don't concern yourself with the future. Just fixate on the present and your own pleasure right here, right now. But God says, it's okay to be moved by the things that worry you. But give those worries to me. Fix your attention on me and receive my peace. Jesus said once, I don't give like the world gives. You know what he was talking about in that context? Peace. He said, I give you my peace my peace I leave with you. So church, today I want us to be doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. So we're going to end our service right now with a time of prayer. Um, I'm going to invite members of our prayer team to either side of the room. If you, as we turn to the Lord in prayer, if you don't know how to pray, what to pray, if you just feel overwhelmed and anxious and burdened, just please know that there are folks available who would love to pray for you and with you right now. Um, so I'm going to ask that we would just uh, bow our heads now. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus as your Lord, maybe the main concern in your life is what happens at the end. Is death the end? And to that, I would just encourage you, call out on the name of Jesus because he destroyed death. He sets anyone free from the fear of death who calls on his name. And he gives eternal life. And if you're here this morning and anxiety is your struggle, is a struggle for you, follow this pattern. We're going to follow it together in a moment. But start with a place of faith, with a posture of faith, that God is who he says he is. And if you're here and 
anxiety is not a struggle for you, I would just encourage you, intercede on behalf of your brothers and sisters in this room. I don't need to tell you the statistics. It's here. It's present. So pray for one another. Let's go to the Lord. And if I could invite the, those prayer team members up now, um, just at any point this whole time, feel free to come forward and receive prayer. Lord, we come to you and we just lay ourselves at your feet, Lord. You know us. There's not any part of us hidden from view, but we make ourselves known to you, Lord. We just want to open up before you, God. Look upon our circumstances, Lord. want us to be transparent with you, God. You see our struggles. You see our thoughts. You see that which weighs us down, which we've put on our own shoulders, Lord. We want to give it to you, God. And we come earnestly to you. We come desperate for you. We come in need of you. You are our supply, Jesus. If there's a need that we have, we acknowledge that you are able to meet it. You are our supply, Lord. We just bow before you. We hold out our hands to you, Lord. Fill us up with what we need from you, Lord. You give beauty for ashes. Praise for heaviness. We give you thanks, Jesus. We give you thanks for who you are, God. You are Jehovah Jireh, our provider. Thank you that you've made a way for us, a way for us to experience and know your peace Thank you that you poured out your blood that we might know your peace, Lord. Thank you that you do not 
desire to see us in turmoil or struggling or drowning or being choked by these thoughts, Lord, you desire to give us your peace. You're so generous. You're so good, Lord. Lord, and we know we can make our requests known to you. We don't have to be ashamed of our struggles, Lord. We don't have to be worried that you don't care, that you're distant and cold. You want us to be specific, to come to you with that level of closeness of a child and their father. So we just, we make our requests known to you, Lord, whatever it is. Help us, Lord. Help us, God. Take away the things that are weighing us down, Jesus. Set us free from the ways of thinking, these patterns, these ruts that we are in, Lord. Lord, and we want to receive your peace, God. We want to take it in like we would eat a meal. We want to know what it means that your peace is guarding our hearts and our minds. In this moment, Lord, would you just help us experience the reality of your peace? It's not a secret. You lay it out for us to take hold of, to give it unto us. And you give with such generosity, Lord. Would we know your peace? Would it take hold of us? Would we just know without a shadow of a doubt that we are in your presence and there is safety? We hide ourselves in you. Under the shadow of your wings we hide, Lord. Thank you that this is not a moment that we have to be here to experience. This is what you want for us each and every day, each moment. You want us to bring it all before you, everything before you, lay it at your feet, Lord. Help us do that with urgency each and every day just to come before you, Lord casting our cares on you because you care for us. Jesus.
Church, I'm just going to read over us a psalm that we all know. I want you to receive it. I want you to hear it, take it in. Because it's a psalm of peace. It's a psalm of shalom, of that wholeness that the Lord offers us. So hear his word and take it in. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.